Beware of strangers. Do not talk to them. Do not trust them. This is common counsel for children in our day. You simply don't know. A stranger may have bad intentions and threaten your safety, so never trust a stranger. Avoid them. As necessary as such counsel is for the protection of our children, it's really an unfortunate entailment of life in a fallen world. Because as possible as it is for a stranger to harm me, there's an even greater danger that I harm a stranger by ignoring, avoiding, rejecting, or even hating that person. The fear of strangers may on rare occasion provide necessary protection, but far more often such aversion to strangers is driven by nothing less than unloving, self-centered hearts. My intention is to persuade you and to stir up your minds by way of reminder that as followers of Jesus Christ, our calling is not to ignore, avoid, reject, or hate strangers. Rather, our lives are to be oriented to and marked by loving, self-sacrificing ministry to strangers. A ministry to strangers in the New Testament is put under the word hospitality. Don't think there in terms of serving someone food, though it certainly may include that. The word hospitality, we'll look at it a bit later in more detail, but it is our calling to be the lovers of strangers. It is our call as the followers of Christ to become stranger-loving people of a stranger-loving God. And I'd like us to consider this theme, first of all, under this heading, and that is that hospitality is a virtue that God commands His people to practice. As we look at the New Testament documents, we note this in various places. It usually comes across as a very simple, succinct command. We find it in Romans chapter 12. I encourage you to turn there. We're going to look at a number of passages as we consider this theme today. Our relationship to strangers as followers of Christ. Romans chapter 12, just to get the lay of the land, and I think this is helpful to gain the context and see the direction of Paul's instruction to the Romans here in chapter 12 at verse 9. The call to hospitality is just succinctly stated, but notice the context. Verse 9 of Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We consider these virtues would be a very godly person that put these all into play and demonstrated this kind of life. And included in this list is this call to show hospitality to strangers, to love strangers. 
contributing to the needs of the saints in that day often involved opening your home to traveling Christians. Virtually any commentary that looks at any length at this command will bring this idea out. The Roman Empire established widespread peace, making travel relatively safe. And the empire also created an excellent road system, making travel relatively easy. And in that system then, there rose up inns. And these inns would provide food and lodging for travelers. You could purchase hospitality. But at this early stage of that practice, such business establishments were sparse to begin with. But they were also notorious for vile behavior and violence. They simply were not very safe places. So out of love for Christian brothers and sisters, and in the interest of aiding the spread of the Gospel as well, Christians would often bring other Christians into their home who were traveling through the area, people they had never met before. They might have been a reference from someone. There might have been a common uh, relationship. But many times they were called to provide hospitality to people they'd never met before. I think we see, in fact, here an evidence of it in this very book as we move to chapter 16. Paul was perhaps by that simple imperative there to show hospitality, preparing the leadership of the church in chapter 16 to do just that with a very tangible project. 16.1 reads, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria." it comes across as if they really don't know who Phoebe is. When they have to describe that this is a servant of the church at Centria, it would indicate they've not met this woman personally. Verse 2, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Help her along the way. Whatever she needs, supply it. It's a call to hospitality. Indeed, Phoebe herself had a reputation of helping others as a woman of some means. We won't consider that at any length here today, but those who are hospitable, those who love strangers, draw from their resources. There are, there's, there's resources that are available. She has those resources. She has helped others. Now in her travels, you help her. Again, coming out of this simple command, show hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13. If you'll make your way there, Hebrews 13. We find another succinct statement, an imperative, a call to us to love strangers. Verse, thir- verse 1 of chapter 13 of Hebrews. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Brotherly love is apparently the broader category. One way brotherly love is demonstrated is to show hospitality to strangers. Now, let's concentrate on this phrase, to show hospitality to strangers. That's actually just one word in the Greek text. We really don't have an English way of of describing this. And so I think this phrase is, is appropriate in its translation, to show hospitality to strangers, is what the word means. But it's really just one word. And it's a word that combines two Greek words, philos, meaning love, and xenos, meaning stranger. 
So literally, do not neglect hospitality or do not neglect love of strangers. That's how we might say it more literally. So again, with hospitality here, then we're not thinking in terms of putting the teacup on the dish right at the right spot or how to arrange the fork and the knife and the spoon. That's not hospitality in that sense but rather in the sense of loving someone who is a stranger, someone in his, who is in a, the unique need that's in which strangers find themselves. The opposite of loving strangers, there's an, which is philozenia, is to fear strangers. Xenophobia. There we have stranger put with the word phobia, the word fear. Xenophobia sometimes is used even in the media today as there's a significant crisis in some nation. But xenophobia is an unreasonable fear of strangers or more commonly an unreasonable hatred of strangers. It's not used in the sense of quaking fear, but of resistance and rejection and sometimes of hatred. Xenophobia. Xenophobia is driven by a fear that foreigners or strangers in our midst will steal our group identity. If these people come over the border, they're different than us and they're going to change our identity. They'll compromise, another fear, is the purity of our group. Whatever that group is, whatever it sees as pure and right, these people coming in will corrupt our world. Another fear xenophobia, is that these people may hold unhealthy beliefs or introduce unhealthy practices among us. Sometimes our aversion to strangers is rooted less in our fears and more in nothing less than prideful self-centeredness. We just don't want to share. We just don't want to regard other people. We want our own way to do things like we desire. The followers of Christ are to resist the gravitational pull to xenophobia. Rather, we are called to love strangers. That means we're called to love strangers from different economic backgrounds, from different age groups, of different nationalities and or ethnic backgrounds. We are to love strangers who hold different religious beliefs. We are to love strangers who live in godless ways. We don't love their religious beliefs. We don't love their godless ways, but we love them as strangers. Verse 2 gives a reason for this, which is, you say, what on earth does this mean? But he says, the author says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. What is that? How do you entertain an angel not knowing it? Virtually anyone looking at this passage, particularly from a Hebrew perspective, would immediately think of Genesis 18 and 19. In Genesis 18 and 19, we have this very event take place twice. Where angel comes, angels come to visit Abraham and then later to visit Lot. Let's remind ourselves of Genesis 18 and this visitation of Abraham and His hospitality that He shows on this occasion. Genesis 18 and verse 1. Genesis 18 and verse 1. Now, pay careful attention to this account. Try to think through its details. 
And we'll connect this to the ancient setting. Pay careful attention to how Abraham receives these people and what happens. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Who's appearing? The Lord is appearing. Abraham, verse 2, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. We have the Lord appearing, but what Abraham sees in front of him is three men. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, you notice that the typeset is different there. This is not the Lord of verse 1, Yahweh. This is Sir. O Sir, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. You've come to your servant. This wasn't by appointment. This was by the providence of God. These people had come to Abraham and he just simply serves them as strangers. And he went, verse 6, quickly into the tent. Sarah and said, quick, three sea is a fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tent while they ate. They said to him then, where is your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, notice the type said again, now it's God. So as Abraham sees this trio come, he sees three men and addresses them as sir, the leader as sir. But what we know is that it is actually the Lord with two angels or the angel of the Lord. So three angels if we want to take it in that sense. I'm thinking on ancient custom, this really locks into everything that we know about hospitality in that day in a unique way. What you did in the ancient world first with a stranger that had come to you and was seeking lodging or needed food or something, the first thing you would do is feed them. Now that's not the first thing we would do, and I don't know that that's wrong, but that's the first thing that they would do. After the stranger ate, and only after he ate, then you asked his identity, his homeland, and his parentage. Now you want to put him in context after you fed him food. And one of the reasons for this was that in the ancient Near East there was the sense that at any time you could be visited by a god. A God could take on flesh and come among you, and you may be serving this God. If you say, who are you? You find out that it's a God, then you really serve that God well. You won't be blessed very much. But if you serve them without knowing who they are, they may pour out their blessing upon you. We noted something of this context in Acts 14 in our journeys through that book. Paul and Barnabas, remember at Lystra? Barnabas, they said, you're Zeus. And 
Paul was Hermes. These gods had come among us, among them because of the miracle that was worked there. But the background was that there had been a legend that Zeus and Hermes once disguised themselves as men and visited the Phrygian hill country. They went to 1,000 places looking for someone to provide food for them and to bring them in and show hospitality and no one would take them in. Then there was an old elderly couple who received them into their home and sacrificed resources they could ill afford in order to care for their guests. And after the meal, Zeus and Hermes repaid their host by transforming the couple's hut into a glorious temple with a gold roof and marble columns and made them priests. And the couple didn't really die. One was turned into an oak and the other into a linden tree. So when Barnabas and Saul show up and show indication that they may be gods in flesh, the people of Lystra go crazy. You remember this. But that's the legend that's moving them. There were these legends throughout, and who knows how much of that might actually be owing just to the circumstance that took place with Abraham. There was one who was indeed visited by angels, not knowing it. Abraham, according to custom, you'll notice here, does not ask who they are. He feeds them first, and after the meal, then God blesses him. Verse 10, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now the point of Genesis 18 and as it's connected here to Hebrews 13, I don't think we're to conclude that angels routinely travel the earth disguised as men and that one is sure to knock on your front door pretty soon and you better serve them. In fact, I'd say most strangers that knock at your front door, believe me, they're not angels, right? Uh, no, that's not the point. We should extend hospitality to strangers. That's the idea. And as we do, we walk with Abraham, the man of faith, who provided this meal for these three who were not indeed men as we know as we know them but were angels the lord himself this is the idea fully aware that any such situation may be a test from god who is anxious to reward faithfulness and so with these simple commands of Scripture, and we might even add to them the thought of the qualifications for elders in the assembly. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, both include hospitality. This one must be hospitable. One who loves strangers. One who uses resources to help strangers. It's a requirement even within the leadership of the church. It's that significant as Paul speaks to Timothy and Titus about establishing elders at Ephesus and on the Isle of Crete. So we have this simple call to love strangers. It's an imperative, a moral responsibility. But why? Why should we be stranger-loving people? I'd like to root this idea in a biblical theology, just sketching it quickly. But the biblical foundations for practicing hospitality... <clears throat> the first foundation is that Israel was a nation of strangers called to love strangers. 
As we think on this call to love strangers, we need to see this in the development of salvation history. It is significant that the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all lived as aliens in a foreign land. They were all sojourners. Sojourners are simply strangers on a national scale. Someone that the entire nation would see as strangers. They were all sojourners. They lived their life that way. Israel then became a nation of strangers and sojourners in Egypt. And when Israel entered the promised land, God insisted they retain the stranger label. Now this is really pretty remarkable when you think of it. You would think that when the Israelites came to the promised land, God would say, isn't this wonderful? You're no longer strangers. You have your land. You're no longer sojourners. Now you have the promised land. We would think that would be legitimate. But notice what God says. Leviticus 25, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So they've left Egypt as sojourners. They've been through the wilderness wanderings as sojourners. And God says, now that you're in your land, it's my land, and I continue to provide for you. You are guests in my land, and I will pour out my blessing upon you. You are still a people who are sojourners. First Chronicles 29, King David prays. Sometime later, note how he connects himself to this, this flow this stream. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from You and of Your own have we given You. He's making sacrifices to God. He's acknowledging God is the owner of the land. He's a sojourner here and God has poured out His blessing upon Him. We're just giving back something of which You've given to us. Notice the last phrase, last sentence. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as our fathers were. Now the land is settled. The kingdom is established. David is in power, and yet he says that he is a sojourner, identifying with those who have gone before as sojourners. It's a nation of sojourners. And then Israel's responsibility from seeing themselves and their self-identification as, as strangers in the land are then to love other sojourners in their land. To this nation of strangers, God pointed, pointedly instructs them to protect and embrace strangers in their land. Exodus 22, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Notice how he looks back to their history and says that should now affect the way you relate to others in your land. Exodus 23, You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. There it is again. Deuteronomy 10, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. God loves strangers. We take that to heart. Giving Him food and clothing. So, you, here's the imperative, love the sojourner. For you were sojourners 
in the land of Egypt. I just picked these passages out. This is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. Israel was to actively respond to God's saving grace in her history by demonstrating compassion to sojourners in the promised land. God essentially is saying, I loved you as a stranger nation so that you will in turn reflect my love and love the sojourner that is among you. This was your history. This is your calling. Serve me in this unique way. So Israel, in their self-identification, were to see themselves as strangers, and in their moral calling, were to give themselves to the love of sojourners among them. In fact, the Mosaic law that is given by God has provision, unique provision, for Israel to protect the rights of sojourners to protect their dignity and their honor. And as historians look back at this time, they say this is something that is unique in the Mosaic Law. To give such to this level of protection and honor to sojourners is unique. And it is related directly to the fact that God established Israel to think of themselves as strangers in this world. So, by way of theme, Israel as a nation of strangers called to love strangers. This is something, something of the foundation on which we understand this theme. We then move to Jesus as a stranger on earth. We could fill this in fairly easily. We think of the incarnation, which we read of earlier in Philippians 2. Jesus left the splendors of heaven to live among us. He was in that sense the ultimate alien coming out of heaven to live here. In His birth, no room in which to be born, Luke 2.7. In His mission, John 1 says, He was in the world and the world was made through Him. Listen to this. Yet the world did not know Him. He made the world, but the world did not know Him. Well, what about His people? Certainly His people receive Him. The next phrase, He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. He was the ultimate stranger. Rejected. By this world. In his ministry, Luke 9 says, no place to lay his head. That's a stranger. In his death, crucified outside the camp, identifying with the scapegoat that was sent away, in every respect that Jesus lived his life as, an, as the ultimate stranger. Now I'd like you to turn, if you will please, to Matthew 25. And we look then at His identification. In His incarnation, His birth, His mission, His ministry, His death, Jesus the stranger, but also in His identification with strangers. This is unique. This account is unique as we look at Christ as our Savior and our leader. And I I'd invite you, for those that have ESV with you, others can whisper if you wish, along with us. But I'd like us all to read this together. To read this passage, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to the end of the chapter. And as we go through this section and read it, let's engage our minds to consider Jesus' identification with strangers. Matthew chapter 25, 
verse 31. Let's read together. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me food. I was thirsty, and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed Me. I was naked, and you clothed Me. I was sick, and you visited Me. I was in prison, and you came to Me. Then the righteous will answer Him, saying, Lord, when did we see You hungry and feed You, or thirsty and give You drink? And when did we see You a stranger and welcome You, or naked and clothe You? And when did we see You sick or in prison and visit You? And the King will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these My brothers, you did it to Me. Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave Me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave Me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome Me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So much that could be drawn from this passage, but we hone in on this one point. We notice Jesus' identification with strangers. I'm always intrigued by Luke 8 and this list of women who ministered to Jesus' needs, who responded to Him with hospitality. Apparently drawing from their own resources, they traveled along with the disciples and they provided hospitality for Jesus on his, in His travels. I think, wouldn't it be wonderful to be part of that group? To be able to serve Jesus in that way? What He's saying to us here is in a sense you can. As you love strangers, as you minister to them, you're doing it to Me. His identification with the sojourner, the stranger, the alien, the disenfranchised is so close that in aiding them, it is as if we are directly ministering to Christ. Indeed, we are. Through Jesus' death and His resurrection, We as believers become then the new community of faith. We have this heritage of Israel and its experience as a stranger. We have the Savior, Jesus Christ, who comes as a stranger on earth and identifies with strangers. 
providing through His death and resurrection life, which then merges into this third point, the church as strangers rescued from the world. We were, we who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we were once strangers from God. Ephesians chapter 2 emphasizes this idea. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Isolated, alienated, separated strangers to the covenants of promise, to God's saving purposes. But Jesus Christ in His mercy broke down the wall of separation between believers and God. He broke down the wall that separated Jew and Gentile and brought His people into one body, one reconciled body. Thank God He still loves strangers and that He chose to love us in our sin. Once strangers from God. But now secondly, members of God's household. So then, Paul continues to the Ephesians, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Once strangers, no longer. Now in the household of God. Jesus had every reason to ignore us, to avoid us, to despise us indeed as His enemies. But Jesus reached out to strangers and made them His eternal guests. He said, come into My home and let Me provide now a feast of pleasure in My presence. Once strangers, now members of God's household. But then, uniquely, we remain strangers. Remember Israel? Strangers in Egypt delivered, but then in the promised land, seen in their self-identification as strangers in the land receiving the blessings of God. Same thing with the church. Notice it here in the book of Hebrews 11, in that great, book, in that great chapter of the faith of God's people. He says, These all died in faith, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. People seeking a homeland whose builder and maker is God. Once strangers from God, now members of God's household, to become now strangers in the world as our citizenship is in heaven. We remain those strangers who feast on the goodness of God's mercies. So let's put this together. If Israel was to love strangers in the land in grateful response to her status as once strangers in Egypt, we are once strangers there, Now we're strangers in the land here to love sojourners among us. If that's true of Israel, how much more should we who were strangers from God in our sin love spiritual strangers in this world? We have been rescued out of that realm of lostness and alienation from God. And now we represent Christ to go to this world and to speak to others and speak of this reconciliation. We're strangers seeking strangers. They're estranged to the promises of God. We're strangers in this world. We seek to draw them to the grace of God. We understand what it is to be separated from God. We know what it is to be lost and then to be found. 
And so we take this message to a world of strangers. The only proper response to this glorious Gospel is to reach out to this world and to love people for Christ. We are strangers rescued by the ultimate stranger in order that we would live a life loving strangers. Now let's think on this theme along two lines of application. The first is, I think we find in this theme of Scripture a direct call to extend hospitality to unbelieving strangers. Those who are not reconciled to God. We are to reach out to them in love, to connect with them, and to point them to the glories of Christ. Our high calling is to represent the Lord who loves strangers by loving them. And this means that we must purposefully insert our lives into the lives of people that we don't know. We may know of them, we may have, we'll obviously have some contact with them and come to know them, but it's people we don't know who are not in our circle of comfort. We need to insert ourselves in the lives of such people. There's challenges with that, there's risks with that, but that's our calling as God's people. Our focus then, it seems, should be to extend hospitality, to give of our resources to meet the needs of a stranger. One of the most universal needs is food. And many times with that food, we discover other needs, and perhaps just the need for comfort, attention, and love. So I think it'd be fair for me at least to throw out this challenge. To say between now and the end of May, there's going to be a lot of opportunities, I think, but between now and the end of May, I would challenge each one of us, let's make this a project. We can encourage each other with us. Feed someone you don't know in your house. Right now, somebody you don't know, you may know of them, they may have said hi to them sometime, but you have no real relationship with them. Feed somebody in your house in the next couple of months. Let's think on that and see who might we meet, what stranger might we enter into their life and bring them into our home and feed them. And maybe that doesn't work for you to feed someone in your home. That's just not your setting. Seek someone out then to help. Say, I'm, I'm going to stretch myself into the life of an unbeliever that I really don't know right now, and I'm going to do something tangible and helpful. I'm not talking about a handout. Give them something and run away. I mean, meet them. Then extend time and resources to meet a genuine need in that stranger's life. It, maybe it's watching their children. Maybe it's providing a meal. Maybe it's giving them a ride. But just say, I'm going to target this idea of loving strangers. I'm going to see an unbeliever and I'm going to enter into their life. Now that's risky because they may say, what, what do you want? You know, what, what are you trying to get out of me? What's, what's the deal here? What are you trying to sell? What do you want out of me? People are, people are worried about this. You see, when we love strangers, they don't necessarily always love back. Right? Because we're strangers to them. So this takes some work. 
But could we do that between now and the end of May? To find someone we do not know and to say, I'm going to feed that person in my home. I'm going to do something for them that is encouraging and helpful. Our simplest contacts are probably in our neighborhoods, perhaps at work. Some connection that we find, we run into the lives of people we really honestly don't know. Let's stretch ourselves and love a stranger for Christ. Maybe that would even be a good idea today at our home groups to talk about that concept. Who might that be? How might I do that? Will we really take this challenge? And what does it mean to be a stranger loving people? To watch how you say that, don't you? Stranger dash loving people, not strange people who love people, but stranger loving people. How can we do that? In fact, we rejoice in the homes that will be opened this evening in hospitality to provide such conversations that we might deepen as a church and love a lost world for Christ. Let's go off a second line of application, and that is to extend hospitality to church visitors. We're soon to move into a new building. We realize this is a transitional period and, and maybe an opportunity uh, that is unique for our church. And so in, in part, I've thought of this theme uh, for this reason. If life proceeds as normally, strangers are going to walk into the doors of our new church building. They do here all the time. We rejoice in that and thank God for it. But as we come there, there's some unique settling that's going to take place and many more strangers will be in our midst it would appear in very short order how will we respond i think there's some tremendous temptations here we don't know precisely what the future holds but i'm talking even just about our initial landing dedication service and these kinds of things i'll talk about this in a moment but you know, when strangers come in among us, it can trouble us. It can be a troubling concept. There might be a danger there. They may steal our group identity as a church. That's a fear. The temptation is, is who are they to waltz in here and step on our turf as if it's theirs? So I'm going to ignore these people and hope that they just go away. They're just visitors here for a moment. They're here for a dedication service. They go away. They don't really matter. I'm not going to stretch myself to love such a person. I think that's small-minded and self-centered. We would think like that, and I need to chase that out of my own mind. It's not like Christ. One of those other fears that come is the compromise of the purity of our church. May the temptation be to say this visitor, this stranger, he or she may come with unbiblical beliefs and godless behaviors. So I'm not, I'm not going to reach out there. I, I think this would taint our church, this person. And just eye them up and see that perhaps. Or maybe I know something about them. I, I, don't, I don't think that we should welcome them. And we wouldn't articulate this. That's really what's deep in our heart. That's the concern that's really there. And I think we need to kill it. I can tell you with full assurance, Jesus did not reach out merely to good people. He reached out to godless people, to sinners, to those who didn't believe some of the things they should believe. The amazing thing is that 
some of those people radically changed. Now I will admit and say by way of, of caution, there's some times when we get in the midst of some godless people in certain situations, we just shouldn't be there. It's over our head and they're dragging us down. That's understanding where you are in your maturity and saying, I'm not going to go there because those people take me away from God. But as we mature in our faith and as we look at the example of Jesus Christ, He had no problem crossing the boundaries with godless people who believe the wrong things. He loves strangers. And if you're going to love strangers, you've got to cross those lines. The key was when Jesus got around them, they changed. He never did. He remained pure. He remained true to the convictions that He had as God. He held to the truth. But He crossed those lines because He loved people. He even taught us, didn't He? It's really not a big deal if you love the people who love you. It's when you love the stranger who's afraid of you and who thinks so differently than you do that we begin to enter into the work that Christ has really given us. That other temptation that I mentioned earlier was xenophobia, is prideful self-centeredness. The temptation here, again, we'd never articulate, but something like, I'm an introvert. I don't have the time. They'd think I'm weird. I'd hurt the church if I talked to that visitor. Or maybe down a different track, a different kind of temptation under this same idea. He's already a believer. She's a friend or relative of another member of our church. I don't need to say anything there. Really, it's just self-centeredness that drives these kinds of thoughts. I think what we need to do then is to learn to consider the psychology of visitors. And I mean this in the best sense of the term. But to be aware of how they think and where they are. We've all been visitors. Isn't that what God said to Israel? You were in Egypt. Isn't that what He says to us? You were alienated from the life of God. You know what that's like. Think on it. We know what it's like to be a visitor. What's their psychology? They're a little nervous. They're uncomfortable. They're self-conscious. They're unsure of themselves, perhaps. There's no sense of belonging. Not with you. They're isolated. Lonely, perhaps. Some are searching. They're all different, certainly. They don't come in among you with the same comfort that you have. I'm, I don't know... I hang between irritation and anger and downright laughter... When I hear from time to time people say, well, I'm not talking to them. I don't know them. No, you don't know them. Of course, that's the point. You don't know them. You don't talk to only the people that you know. Jesus acted like that. None of us would be saved. You know what I mean. He knew us in His divinity, but He came into our world to meet us in our sin. I don't know that person is a reason to meet them. It's a reason to welcome them, to talk to them. So let me challenge you this way as visitors come among us. First thing that we need to do is speak. It's that simple. Hi, I'm glad you're here today. Am I? 
Should I be glad that someone's here? Is that somehow self-serving to be glad that someone's visiting among us in our church for whatever reason? I think we ought to be glad. Now there's some people that should never come back. There's some people, in fact, that we need to counsel to keep moving past our church. It's just not where they ought to be. But when they're here for the first time and they're visiting, it is in the providence of God that they're in our place. And if we're glad in God, then we're glad they're here. And we should express that joy. God brought them here ultimately. We should communicate that as followers of Christ, we want to love people. I don't always say things right. It may be difficult. It may be a bit of a stilted conversation. Remember, we're strangers talking to strangers. But I want to send the message that we love people. I love people. I serve a God who loves strangers. And so I want to love you. Now please understand here, there's a really radical difference between warm friendliness and love. Some people have a really hard time discerning the distinction between that. I'm not talking about being a friendly church. In my opinion, understand rightly, there's too many friendly churches in this world. There's not enough loving churches. It's not just about being friendly people. It's about genuinely reaching out to strangers and loving them as God would have us love them. In love for strangers, sometimes we say, this is not where you want to be. We're happy to help you, steer you to what we believe and what we think. But this is really not where you want to be, where you're at right now. Friendliness never has that conversation. It's just, how are you? What's your name? Nice weather. It's just friendly. It's just bubbly, effervescent. We're not talking about friendliness. We're talking about genuinely loving strangers. Speak. Extend genuine hospitality. It may be something as simple as escorting someone to a room. Not ignoring them, not avoiding them, not being intimidated by them, but saying, where are you going? They say, I have no idea. Well, let's figure that out. Let me take you there. Maybe it is providing a meal. Maybe that's one way that many of us could get that bringing someone in we don't know to eat a meal in our home. We simply find a visitor at church, we have the meal ready, and we say, will you join us at our place? That might be intimidating. It might be difficult for them. But maybe that's one way that we could love a stranger with hospitality. There's a number of projects coming our way, and I wanted us to just think on this theme as we enter those projects. We are tentatively planning to have a community open house at our new place. I have had people, officials in the city, ask me, will you please invite us to your open house? So I think we're going to have to have one. (laughs) Yeah, that won't be a problem. You have unbelievers asking you if they can come into the church. We've got to find a reason to bring them. And I've been thrilled by the people saying to me, let us know what's happening. We'd like to see this building open. That stranger that walks in that you have no idea, it might be somebody that I know in the community as an official. It may be somebody that you know in your community or your neighborhood. Let's love strangers. Not to say, I don't know who that person is. But rather, to reach to them. A community open house, a dedication service where the visitors will largely be more friends from around the area, from churches that are of like mind. 
You say, well, these people don't matter. They're here for one day and they're gone. I don't know who they are. They go to another church. They're all fine. They're in our house. If they're in our house and you don't know who they are, they're a stranger. Love them. Speak to them. Welcome them. We hope to have an outreach to business owners. Some may be involved in that and to reach these people that we don't know as we bring them to our building and have a, a meal for them and try to exercise hospitality with them. And then just the week-by-week visitors that come. I'm, I'm always thrilled when someone says, you're such a friendly church. But I hope that friendliness is really just the external I hope that it goes much deeper and that there's growing within us a sense of the necessity and the privilege of loving strangers. People who don't think like us, believe like us, live like us. People who are from different walks of life and places. To cross those boundaries is to walk with Christ. To love people who are just like me and like me is easy. To love strangers is Christ-like. Who are you going to love? Who are you going to reach? Who are the people we don't know whose lives we'll touch as God gives us life together? We're to become stranger-loving people of a stranger-loving God. As you come here today to church you may realize that you don't know this God. You don't know who He is. You don't walk in such intimate fellowship with Him. It is your sin that keeps you at odds with God and alienates you from Him. The Bible teaches that Christ became a stranger so that He could take on our sin, bear its weight, pay its penalty, rise from the dead, and give life to those who trust Him. Forgiveness of sin in His name. And when that takes place, when we come to trust what Christ has done to pay that penalty, we are invited to commune at His table. We become a part of His household, part of His family, and we receive His hospitality. It is this good news to which we must respond so that we're no longer strangers to God, but members of His household called then to love the strangers of this world. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our Father, for what You have done for us in Christ. And in His name, we pray and come to You asking that You might teach us to push ourselves, to stretch ourselves, to know the life of loving others that we don't know. It's so unnatural to all of us in some sense, some more than others, but we find it exhilarating to trust You and to learn to cross those lines of resistance and to be a blessing to the stranger. I pray that You will move this church to respond in faith to this call. That we will respond as we relate to an unbelieving world and continue to stretch ourselves and push out and love strangers. I pray, Father, for those who come among us in our church, in our homes, 
that we would demonstrate our love for them. And while we indeed need to be cautious, I pray that we would never reject or withhold ourselves from the call to love that You've placed upon our lives. May we love others as You have loved us in Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.